Via Dolorosa, which from the Latin means the way of grief or the way of sorrow. And so we're following Jesus from his initial prediction of his way through the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. And so this morning we come to Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 to 46 is where we're going to be today. So um, I encourage you, if you've got a Bible in front of you, turn there as we read it together. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me, and you can follow along there as well. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36, reading down through verse 46. Matthew writes these words. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word. One of the things I've learned over the years as someone who has competed in uh, running competitions uh, since I was in high school, whether it be track, cross country, in college, and then in half marathons and long distance races since then, is that whenever you begin to push past certain uh, time thresholds of physical activity, you must have a refueling plan. Okay, because around that hour and 15 minute mark of continuous exercise, your body has expended the majority of the glycogen stores that it has has stored up in all of your muscles. And so you have to begin to refuel yourself. Now, there's a variety of ways that endurance athletes may do this. Uh, They do this in, in both two categories, with hydration and with nutrition. Okay, so both and. So there's this this company called Goo. Okay, that's a great name, isn't it? Goo, and Goo makes these little gel packs uh, that are 100-calorie packs that you can squeeze into your mouth. And listen, there's all kinds of ways I can try to doctor that stuff up, but it's just straight sugar, okay? And so they got all different kinds of flavors. None of them, by the way, none of them are very appetizing, okay? But you shoot that shot of goo into your mouth, right? It's a little packet about this big, and then you wash it down with some water uh, and stay hydrated, and you continue to refuel so that you have calories that you can burn if you want to perform at peak levels as you move past an hour and 15, an hour and 45, two hours and 30, right? About every 45 minutes to an hour, you have to refuel or else you hit what the uh, exercise physiologists would call the proverbial wall, 
okay, when your body no longer has the sufficient nutrition or calories that it needs in order to propel you forward, and you feel like your whole body is shutting down. You feel like your legs are as heavy as cinder blocks, okay? You're trying to drag those strapped around your ankles. That's what it feels like, right, because you've hit that wall if you don't refuel, church. And the reality is that that not only is a true situation uh, with regards to our bodies, but it's also true in regards to our souls. We all have a point at which at times we may hit the proverbial wall spiritually. Right? A point at which we're drained by the everyday realities of life in a fallen world. Right? It can be hard sometimes, can it? A point at which we are enticed by the vision of the life presented to us from worldly sources. And so we're drained by right, the realities of life, and then we're enticed by the worldly messages that we receive from uh, everywhere other than the scriptures, and we end up yielding to temptation. But Jesus knows this about our human nature. That's part of the good news this morning. And in verse 37, he makes this statement. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So One thing Jesus does as he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane with Peter, James, and John through both his instruction to them and the pattern of what he engages in himself is gives us a strategy to fuel those willing spirits that we now have as Christians. If you're a Christian in the room this morning, there is a, the the Bible says there's been a new birth that's taken place in your life. Theologians call that the regeneration, that you've come to life. Spiritually, you've come to life. And now there is a willing spirit in you, but your flesh, your body, that part of you, right, outside of, right, the, the, the old man that used to rebel against God and fight against God, it is, 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 Jesus says the spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. And so how do you fuel a willing spirit? That's what I want us to look at this morning from Matthew chapter 26, because I believe Jesus gives us a strategy for it in his time in the garden. See, Matthew 26 begins with Jesus once again predicting his coming crucifixion. And then it goes on to tell us how the religious leaders conspired and plotted against Jesus to put him to death. It progresses by recording the account of Jesus being anointed by a woman who breaks open a jar of very expensive ointment and pours it over her head. It continues with this arrangement that is struck between Judas and those very religious leaders uh, that wanted to betray him and deliver him, and Jews would deliver him over to the authorities. Next in Matthew 26, we find the final record of the Passover meal Jesus would celebrate with the disciples, his prediction that every single disciple would abandon him in his greatest hour of need. And then we find recorded in Matthew 26 his time in the Garden of Gethsemane, in which Jesus leaves the bulk of the disciples behind, and he brings with him Peter, James, and John, invites them to come a little farther with him as he carves out time for prayer prior to the most monumental moment in human history. Jesus confides in these three that he brings with him just how distressed, troubled, sorrowful he was, and then he presses into his relationship with his father through prayer. And when Jesus comes back after asking them to watch with him, Jesus finds Peter, James, and John asleep. And then he issues two commands to them. He calls them to two things in the text. He calls them to watchfulness and prayerfulness. 
in the passage. Now, when Jesus calls them to those two things, those two words are both, are both verbs, and they're present, active, imperative verbs. You're like, man, you just lost me in some kind of English grammar class. This is what it means, okay? They are, they are imperatives, which means they are commands and not suggestions. They're, they are things that ought to be done. They are present commands, which means they're ongoing, continuous commands that ought to be a part of the rhythms and routines of our lives. And they are active commands, which means they ought to be done by us and not by someone else, that we are engaged in this practice. And then Jesus goes on to say, the reason I'm giving you these commands is in order that you may not enter into temptation. Now, notice the word enter there. Jesus doesn't say, be prayerful and watchful so that you won't experience temptation. He says, be prayerful and watchful so that you won't enter into temptation, so that you won't yield to temptation, so that you won't give yourself over to temptation. So you'll see the door. All of us are going to experience temptation, but you won't open it. And you won't walk through it. So Jesus gives us this two-fold strategy for refueling or fueling a willing spirit. And he says two things essentially to us. And that's what we want to spend the bulk of our time on this morning. And the first one is this. He's the first thing that he says to his disciples is stay awake. Stay awake. The word watch, church, it literally meant to have been roused from sleep. Now, I don't know if you've ever been... Those of you who are parents, you're very aware of this scenario, okay? If you've ever been taking a nap on the couch Sunday afternoon after church, getting ready for a long week, right? And the kids are running around the house because kids don't, at my kids' ages, they don't nap anymore, okay? Right? And so they're running around the house. they got friends running in and out, and you're trying to rest. And the door is slamming, right? And they, they, they want to, uh, you know, can I do... I won't give it away because they're sitting up here in the front row. Right? Can I do this or can I do that or can I go there or can you take me to do this, right? And so they're shaking you and there's loud noises all around. Well, just as you fall asleep and that door slams, what happens in that moment? You're startled, aren't you? Right? Have you ever been startled out of a sleep or out of a slumber or out of a nap? Whenever you're startled in that moment right, what happens is all of your senses go on what? High alert, don't they? Right? Like, whoa, what's going on? Right? Who's breaking in? Okay? Right? Whenever you're aroused from sleep like that, all of a sudden, all senses are heightened, and you're on this high, in this high alert scenario and situation. And what Jesus is saying here is this. That as followers of his, as disciples of Jesus, okay, we ought to live continually on high alert. We ought to live continually in that, 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 that roused state where we've been awoken from sleep and now things are heightened in our life. We ought to be awake and aware constantly of the threats that are around us and constantly of the threats that are within us. Because they come from both, outside and inside, that would draw us into temptation. And Jesus says, live in a constant state. Remember, present, continual, active, you do it, imperative, command, be constantly on high alert, is what Jesus is telling his disciples. And a part of what this means for us, church, is this, is that 
there ought to be a high degree of spiritual, situational awareness in our lives. Now, as a parent of uh, now a, a, a teenager and a preteen, I'm having, I feel like I'm a CD sometimes. Some of y'all don't even know what CDs are. You're too young to remember what a CD was. But a CD, right, this compact disc that you used to put in a CD player in your car or in your home. Well, inevitably, if you didn't take care of those discs very well, they ended up getting scratches on them. And whenever they got scratches on them, they would put in there and that little laser that was trying to read all the information encoded onto that disc would hit that scratch. And what would it do? Some of you know what it would do. It would skip, wouldn't it? And it was, it would, they would sing the same note and the same word over and over and over and over and over and over again. That's what parenting is, all right? It's being a scratched CD, okay? Because you're saying the same things over and over and over again to your children oftentimes. And one of the things that I feel like I, 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 have, I, have, I have said until I'm blue in the face trying to teach my kids is to have an awareness of their surroundings and an awareness of the situation that they find themselves in. Situational awareness. Be aware of what's in your immediate space, of who or what might be a threat to you and who or what you might be a threat to with that stick that you have in your hand as you wave it around, not being aware of the fact that somebody's standing right behind you and you slam them in the back of the head. Right? Situational awareness. But to be on high alert spiritually constantly means that we have this high degree of spiritual situational awareness. And a part of what that means is that you are aware of where your temptations come from. You're aware. You're aware of the things that entice you. Right? You're aware of the situations that you have found yourself in previously in the past that have drawn you aside, that have led you astray, that have awoken desires within you that are rebellious against God, that, 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 that move in a direction that would be not, not be honoring to God. You're situationally aware spiritually of those realities. And then you don't put yourself back into those, that, those kinds of situations in which you have been enticed and once again drawn astray so that you would enter into temptation. I know those places in my life. I know them. And one of the things I've, I, I, at, at 44 now that I feel like I have to do even more than I did whenever I was 24 is to remind myself that if I take that step, I know where it's going to end. Where are you tempted? Are you spiritually, situationally aware and watchful? Knowing what is a threat to you. Knowing those places where you are tempted. And what I find interesting in this particular passage is that what we learn from Jesus taking Peter, James, and John with him is this. Is the people who need this watchfulness most in their lives are the people who are most assured of themselves and most certain that they have it all together. Why do I say that? Because prior to this, in Matthew chapter 26, listen, Jesus doesn't invite Peter, James, and John into the garden with him because he needs them. Peter invites, or, or Jesus invites Peter, James, and John into the garden with him because they need him. They need him, church. Jesus brings Peter, listen, 
Because Peter has very publicly and very repeatedly avowed his allegiance to Jesus, even to the point of death. Jesus, I got this, right? Everyone else may flee, but Jesus, I am your ride to die, right? I'm going to be with you no matter what comes, no matter what rises, no matter what we face. I'm going to be with you lockstep every step of the way, Jesus, very publicly, very repeatedly. Jesus brings James and John because they have asserted their ability because they wanted to be seated at the right hand, right? And so in that conversation, they asserted their ability to drink the cup that Jesus would drink and be baptized with the baptism that Jesus would be baptized with. In other words, the people that Jesus takes with them are those who are most full of themselves because they are the ones in greatest need of watchfulness in their lives. And some of us know what it is to be full of ourselves. We know what it is to feel like we've got it all together. Right? We, like Peter, are very impetuous and make declarations. Jesus, I am with you every step of the way. Or yes, I would suffer for you, Jesus. I will, I will drink the cup. I will be baptized. When in fact, Jesus tells James and John at that point, he says, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't know the cup that's coming. You don't know the baptism that's coming. But listen, all of us, all of us have a tendency in our lives to underestimate what's required of us and overestimate what we're capable of. We all have that tendency. Some of you have heard me tell the story before about the, the very first time I went snow skiing. Right? And here I am, right? somebody, this church had called me to come speak at this ski retreat for their youth group. And so I was like, sure, man, I've never been skiing, but if you pay me to come and, and speak and then pay for my way and lodging and skiing and all that stuff, I'm in. And so I go and speak at this ski retreat. And so I'd never been in the snow before. I grew up in South Louisiana, okay? Never been in the snow before. And so this is all a new experience to me. And so I get on the bunny slopes and I put on the skis. And I begin to try to make my way down the bunny slope with the instructor. And they're like teaching me, basically all they taught me how to do was stop without killing myself. All right? Just point the skis to the middle and sit back so that you don't care I'm out of control. All right? And so by the end of the week, though, I'm like doing greens and I'm doing some blues. And I'm like, man, I'll try a blue-black here, right? And so I do a blue-black and then I'm going up the, the, the lift and I see this kid. Couldn't have been more than eight or nine years old. And he's doing the moguls. You know what moguls are? They're those you've seen in the Winter Olympics, right? There's little mounds of snow that they, like, people are cutting in and out of. So I see this kid doing the moguls. And I think, if a nine-year-old can do that, surely a grown man can do that. And so I get off the, slow, I get off the lift and I go down. And listen, <laughs> I mean, I hit that first, that first mogul and I was on my back. I hit the next mogul, and I'm on my face. I hit the next mogul, I'm on my right side. The next one, I'm on my left side. I finally gave up, took the skis off, and walked out whenever I saw a pool of blood sitting next to one of the moguls. And fortunately, it was not mine, but somebody else had done that, and I thought if somebody else had done that, I'm heading that direction too, right? Because I underestimated what was required and overestimated my abilities. And listen, we do that constantly spiritually in our lives. Which is why Jesus says, stay awake. Live on high alert. Be watchful. 
Where does temptation come from in your life? Be situationally aware. But the second thing that Jesus tells the disciples in the garden is to submit in prayer. To submit in prayer. Jesus calls us to pray as a reflection of our dependence on God and the need that we have to be discerning even about where it is that temptation comes from in our lives. To be relying on God because we recognize we are not up to the task in and of ourselves. We need discernment to sort through and sift through what is taking place in us and what's taking place around us. But look at the prayer itself that Jesus prays. So he gives them the instruction and then he shows them the pattern in the text. Look at the prayer that Jesus prays. It's the prayer of submission. What theologians call the prayer of submission. And notice that even Jesus needs to pray this prayer repeatedly. He prays it on three consecutive occasions in one night. Right? Jesus crawls away with the Father repeatedly and says the same thing over and over again. If you think prayers that are filled with repetition are not honoring to God, then look at what Jesus says. Three separate times. Now, this prayer of submission, if you go back into the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. One of the things that he says, he, says, he starts with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And the very next movement in the prayer is your kingdom come, your what? Will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus says in Matthew 6, we ought to pray, Father, your will be done. And then in Matthew 26, Jesus prays, Father, your will be done. It's a prayer of submission. And notice when he's praying it in the midst of his trouble, in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his distress, because of the situation he finds himself in, Jesus is saying, Father, let your will be done. Let your will be done. Let your will be done. There was a 17th century Puritan pastor by the name of Thomas Watson, and he spoke of this kind of prayer or this kind of pleading with God. Because he says, he talked about prayer in this, rea- in, in this regard. He said that the prayer of submission is, is us praying or pleading with God to bend our will to his so that we would diligently do all that God commands and patiently submit to all that God inflicts. On both sides of that coin. That we would diligently do all of God's commands and patiently submit to all that God inflicts. Because there are providential inflictions, okay? I just made up a word this morning. But there are things that come into our life that God sends into our life at times in order to test, in order to show the validity of our faith so that we can see it in the way that He sees it. And that we ought to patiently submit to those things. Our problem, though, whenever we see Jesus praying this prayer of submission is that the prayer of submission in our modern Western culture, it feels like spiritual suicide. It's what it feels like to us. Because we're so conditioned in our modern culture that, the, that, this, that, that, that what we think of when we think of prayer, ex- almost exclusively, is thinking of trying to pray things into existence that are not, rather than praying ourselves into perseverance in the midst of things that are. 
me say that again. Trying to pray things into existence that are not rather than praying ourselves into perseverance in the midst of things that are. We expect God to change our situation around us rather than changing us through the situation that we find ourselves in. So we don't pray, your will be done. But that's what Jesus teaches us to pray. And the reason I say we've got to plead with God for this is because, listen, this does not come naturally to us. It doesn't. It doesn't come naturally to me. Let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. In 1994, there was an article in the Atlantic Monthly about temperaments in children. And if you've got more than one, you recognize they all come with their own. Right? Temperaments in children that went against the grain of modern parenting uh, philosophy. And this, it, 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 it basically recounted the results of a cross-cultural study across 36 cultures. So it wasn't just America. 36 cultures. And they concluded that there is such a thing as temperaments. In other words, a wiring in our brains. And so they identified several different temperaments. An anxious type, an aggressive type, and a more apathetic or laid-back type. It said these temperaments wired kids with how to handle situations they face in life. Right? So you've probably seen it in your own children. Whenever situations, they find themselves in a particular situation, either anxiety rises in their heart, aggression rises, and they want to tackle it head on, or they just kind of resign themselves to whatever's going on, laid back and apathetic. When they run into trouble, anxious types say, let's run. <laughs> Some of you may say, let's run, whenever you run into trouble. Aggressive types say, let's fight. Let's get them before they can get us, right? And the more laid back and apathetic types just say, well, that's, you know, case for us, whatever it will be, will be. That's just life. And the article identifies these, these different types, but the article says that the problem with our natural temperaments is they only produce a wise response in certain situations. Sometimes the smartest response is the anxious response and to flee. Sometimes the smartest response is the aggressive one and to fight. Sometimes the smartest response is the laid back one and to say, it's just life. However, at times the wrong response in the certain situations could get you killed. It could be lethal for you. And the article concluded that most modern experts, this is 1994, mind you, were wrong when they said you should not impose anything on them. But you must let them discover who they are. They have their own gifts and their own wiring. And they have to discover that for themselves without you imposing anything on them. Without you telling them to go against the grain of what they feel internally. And the article said that leading child psychiatrists said the worst thing for a parent to do is let their kids always do what comes naturally. The only way they're ever going to be really wise in life is if you can get them out of their temperament so they can learn skills and responses that are not natural to them, that don't come natural. So you have to intervene at times and press your children to respond in ways that goes against the grain of their temperament. And this is hard work, parents. You know it. It's hard work. And one of the reasons it's hard work, right, when we have to say to our kids, I know it doesn't seem natural. I know you don't understand why I'm telling you to do what I'm telling you to do. That's, a, that's another scratch on the CD there. Right? When you say, you're going to understand one day, and they're like, I'm never going to understand. I said the same thing to my parents. And now I understand. Right? I know you don't understand why I'm telling you to do what I'm telling you to do. Or why I'm telling you to do this. But this is what you need to do. And the reason we don't 
say this is more than we should is because when we do, our kids sometimes get angry or they cry or they rebel or they revolt or they, 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 they organize a strike in the home. And we don't want that. And one of the reasons as parents we don't want that is because our heart is so bound up to theirs. So whenever they hurt, we hurt. Whenever they're filled with joy, we are filled with joy. But what, what, what this study concluded is the, the most selfish possible thing is to say, I love my child too much to push them against what comes natural and to make them angry or tearful. See, one of our problems as parents is that we often love the love that we're getting from our kids more than we love our kids. But here's where you and I learn from our good Heavenly Father. Because we have a Father in Heaven who is perfect. And at times, He will push us against the grain of what comes naturally to us to shape us into something and someone we are not by nature. Not naturally, but supernaturally. He will put us in situations and He will ask things of us that we're not equipped to do. He will inflict us with things that we're not equipped to handle apart from His grace and His power meeting us in the midst of that moment. And if you don't see him, listen church, if you don't see him as a perfect heavenly father who is in all things and at all times working for your good, then you will always run, like if you go back to the prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, you will always run to give us this day and run right past your will be done. You'll always be trying to pray things into existence rather than praying yourself into endurance, which James, in his epistle at the end of the New Testament, says is what produces what? Character in your life. See, what prayer does, church, is it sets our mind on the things of God and shapes our heart around the things of God at the same time. See, you can't pray in lust at the same time. Lust comes naturally to you, Right? To have inordinate desires for things that God has not given. You cannot pray for your enemies and hate them at the same time. Right? Hatred for your enemies is what comes naturally to the human heart. You cannot pray for your brother or sister and be bitter with your brother or sister at the same time. Bitterness is what naturally comes in the human heart whenever you are wounded or wronged. But if you, as you begin to pray for that individual, you find that bitterness being washed away, when you're tempted to vent your self-righteous anger rather than repent from your self-righteous anger, what do you do? You pray because what comes naturally to the human heart is self-righteous anger. And at times, God puts us in situations or with people where he wants to push us against the grain of what comes naturally to us so that we would turn from our self-righteousness. When you're tempted to allow jealousy to fester in your heart toward those who got an opportunity before you did rather than celebrate with them. Like the person who got the job or the promotion that you wanted, the person who found victory over sin in their life while you're still struggling with the same or similar sin. The family who just got pregnant with their fourth child while you and your spouse are still struggling with infertility. All of these are real life situations that would produce jealousy naturally in the heart and God wants to push us against the grain of that. When you're tempted to exact revenge rather than pursue reconciliation, 
So you're going to experience all these kinds of temptations and more. The question is, will you enter into them? And give yourself over to them. Jesus says, stay awake and submit in prayer. Your will be done. Your will be done. Now what, as we close this morning, what will lead us then? What will lead us to be constantly on high alert with regards to where our temptations are coming from? And what will lead us to say to God himself, God, I don't not, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Look at what Jesus is praying about in the garden. On each occasion, whenever he draws away from Peter, James, and John, he says, Father, if there's any other way to accomplish the redemptive work for which I have been sent, can we go that direction? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And each time we see Jesus referring to a cup that has to be drunk. Now, what is Jesus talking about when he refers to the cup? See, in the Old Testament, the cup was the cup of God's judgment against sin, which would be poured out against nations or against peoples. Exclusively, that's how that language is used. And so when Jesus draws on that language and says, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. May it not have to touch my lips. May I not have to take that in. God, if there's any way this judgment that's coming can pass, may it be. The cup he refers to here is the cup of God's judgment against humanity's rebellion against him. Listen, this is the reason Jesus, you and I have probably read story after story of Christian martyrs, right? You, you go pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs and read through all the types of men and women throughout history who, with steely resolve, stood on the day of their execution and said, right, Yet not I, but Christ in me that gave their lives over. My life is of no value to me. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And they face their execution with courage. So why is it that Jesus is in the garden somewhat weepy? Other texts tell us he's sweating drops of blood. He's sorrowful. He's troubled. He's distressed. He doesn't look like Irenaeus there being burned at the stake. Why is that? Because not a single one of those human martyrs that came after Jesus was drinking that cup of God's judgment against sin. It was only Jesus, the only one in human history. Why is he troubled? Why is he sorrowful? Why is he distressed? Because he knows what he's about to drink. As he's betrayed into the hands of the Romans. And into the hands of the religious, Jewish religious leaders who had corrupted themselves in order to see Jesus put to death. He knew what was coming. He knew what was coming, church. He wasn't dying for his sins. But he was dying for mine. And he was dying for yours. And he was dying for everyone's, all of humanity's sin. That's the weight that was resting on Jesus' shoulders. That's the cup that he had to drink. And that's why all the rest of those martyrs subsequent to him could say, my life is of no account to me. 
and they could face death with this steely resolve in their eyes because Jesus drank the cup for them. Jesus says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And as he does, he demonstrates the pattern of what it looks like to be a disciple of his, to fuel the willing spirit. Do you find within you this morning, a church, church, a spirit that's willing to submit to God, a, 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 a spirit that's willing to obey God? If you do, that is nothing but sheer grace and a gift from God but we fuel it through this constant situational spiritual awareness and through this ongoing submission to God in prayer because he drank the cup for you. Hydration and nutrition are vital in an endurance run. And there, listen, there is no greater endurance run than the Christian life. So you come back day after day and week after week to watchfulness and prayer. Would you join me as we pray? Father, this morning, we acknowledge that we are finite, that we are limited. That we do not have what it takes in and of ourselves. To even watch, like Peter, for one hour. To even pray, like James and John, for one hour. We recognize that if we were in their position, we would be asleep as well. Apart from your intervening grace in our lives. So, Father, may we see those moments, those scenarios in which you place us, those things that are the, the dark clouds of your providence. As one old hymn writer said, may we see those as demonstrations of your love to form us into the image of Jesus Christ himself who prayed in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. Father, may there be a, a vigilance and a situational awareness spiritually in our lives of knowing where the threats come from in our lives where our flesh is enticed and drawn away and that we would be on our knees constantly pleading with you to bend our will to yours so that we would not enter into temptation Father, we thank you for the cup that Jesus, your son, drank on our behalf. Your judgment against sin. So that for all who would trust in and treasure him, that you may give us a willing spirit. And Father, with that willing spirit, may we fuel it through watchfulness and prayer all the days of our life as we follow you as your disciples. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, if